Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the $53 million sports business podcast, The Sportacast. All right. Look, he goes, oh, wait. Oh, wait a minute. So you listen oh, to the show because uh, Jessica Berman, commissioner of the NWSL, is playing Homer favorites here. Come on. <laughs> nobody has ever. It wasn't bad, but it's certainly not clap worthy. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I disagree. Thank uh, well, you, Jessica. I'm, I'm so used to people disagreeing. But before we get into the specifics at all, Jess, I, I feel bad that Evan and I, we have these separate conference rooms and I have been terrible. You know, how COVID, there's like that guy on Twitter who rates your background at home. Or, you know, that's great. I'm so terrible. I've done nothing here. I've done nothing at the office. Edmund has a little LeBron on a bicycle peeking. So if, if just to stick th- with the theme, Edmund has seen this. I've got my Cosmos signed soccer ball from the 1970s. How cool is that? That Look is at that. cool. That is some cool stuff. I mean, the panels are coming off <laughs> uh, from my days back at, uh, I guess it was Giant Stadium at the time. So we are a little soccer theme here. Jessica Berman, Commissioner NWSL. Thank you so much for taking some time out. I mean, you're selling, you're raising, you're you're doing it all, and yet here you are with us. Thanks so much. Always, always have time for you guys. Oh, uh, Evan, all right, go ahead. You you want to explain your intro, your fifty three million dollar intro? That hold on, your intro that was so good. <laughs> go for it. Yeah, the the, the news obviously of, of the past week or so, Jessica uh, expansion coming to NWSL team in the Bay Area, led by Sixth Street, the, the majority investor, some other investors, including a number of women who played on the U.S. national team, Cheryl Sandberg, former uh, former Facebook executive. This team is going to start play in 2024 alongside the new team in Utah. Uh, yeah, I'm curious to start with your your feelings here. Is this a weight off? I know this has been a long time coming. H- how do you feel? And, and and let's get into the number also. $53 million expansion fee, by far the largest in NWSL history. I imagine you feel like that's some some proof of concept there as well. Absolutely. I, I, I don't know how to 
make it sound less cliche, but we really couldn't be more excited because when we started this process, and I think you know this from our conversations a year ago, we started out with an investment thesis that the market will tell us the value of our franchise and we weren't going to arbitrarily set a price on the basis of the only thing that we could point to, which is historicals, because we feel that the history of this league artificially limits our future. And so when you set out a proper process and hire professionals to run that process and believe in yourself, I think the proof of concept here is beyond the expansion price and beyond this particular transaction, but a broader takeaway for us that when we bet on ourselves and we give the market an opportunity to show us what we're worth, that we get to the right result. We had Angie Long and Kara Nortman on the show four or five months ago, Scott, something like that. And, oh, right. and I believe it was Angie who said, you know, I think this team could sell for 50 million. And I know that there were some people around the league who heard that and thought that thought that she was crazy. Just to give a perspective to listeners on kind of ha- the various ways in which I think a lot of people in and around the NWSL and probably in the investment community also thought that this could go. And then obviously you guys came out ahead of head of the projection that some people thought was so was so wildly high. Yeah, I, listen, I think there were a lot of people who had a lot of different numbers in their mind and we were really careful to not negotiate against ourselves one way or the other and to let the market dictate the result. And I think the other takeaway is that when there's high demand and you have competitive tension in the marketplace like real actual reliable competitive tension that you can really extract the the appropriate value. And that's really what we had here and we expect to have for the future of expansion. Uh, the very old adage of more bidders equals more money. It's, it's a very simple yet very true axiom. It might be the first thing you learn in yeah. macroeconomics. It's a, the old <laughs> supply and demand concept. And it happens to work well for sports leagues where there is limited supply and it's a limited commodity. And it drives value because there are more people who want to invest in sports teams than there are sports teams. Yes, scarcity scarcity value is definitely a thing, but I'd love to talk to you just sort of about what we're experiencing in the macro level uh, in women's sports in general. I mean, so much focus on the NCAA championship game and players in particular and viewers and eyeballs. It seems as if people have been saying it. I don't know if the people receiving the message have been downloading and believing it. But here is your empirical data that shows the interest is there. So when you have empirical data and you have interested parties, it seems to me that is how you get to a number like 53 million. Absolutely. And you know, I think you mentioned Sixth Street, Eben, and I think that's an important point. It's, this isn't just any investor. This is an investor that has accountability and fiduciary responsibilities to their constituents. And they, I think everyone knows from their history and their track record, they they run their investment pr- propositions through a pretty rigorous process. And they don't make investments for goodwill or social impact, although they're very nice people. They are in it to make money, let's be clear. And they are unapologetic about that being their investment thesis. And to me, That is the shift that you're seeing in the women's sports space, that people are finally willing to acknowledge and recognize and make investment decisions on the basis of this being a true business proposition. And that changes the amount that people are willing to put at risk. Again, I think it's as simple as that. When you think of something as an investment, as a business, you'll invest in it like you would other investments. 
I spoke with Alan Waxman, the, the CEO and co-founder of Sixth Street, about the, the Bay Area franchise last week. And one of the things that jumped out to me, obviously, he just made an investment. He's excited about the investment. But he was unequivocal that this was one of the most, I think, strategically undervalued was the term he kept using, one of the most obviously strategically undervalued assets and sectors that he had ever seen across, again, all of the, the, the many billions of dollars that, that Sixth Street has deployed. Um, and that's, that stuck out to me because two years ago, and the end of yourself franchises were selling for way less, obviously, than they are right now. So he sees strategically un, uh, undervalued even at the price he got in, which is 20 times what people were getting in just a few years ago, which, which I think shows not just, obviously, the growth in the past few years, but, but what very smart people see as the potential moving forward. I feel like that's like the mic drop, you know, that's it. I mean, I don't, it's like the debate about whether women's sports is going to be successful as an investment proposition should be behind us. And I think looking at history will only constrain the future. We know that there's been artificial limits set on the ability for women's sports to be successful. And as someone who spent my entire career in men's sports and had really no idea what was happening under the hood on this side of the business, it's unbelievable to me how data points have been presented and ignored by the industry for so long. And it's because there's limited data points. And so they're easy to sort of write off or say, well, that's a one-off, but they only have those one-offs because that's the only opportunities that have been presented. So it has always historically been a self-fulfilling cycle that has compressed and restrained the ability for women's sports to grow. I think finally, with the introduction and pervasiveness of social media, of digital media, of OTT and streaming platforms, we've been able to build enough of a data set to be able to have more reliable proofs of concepts. No, no kidding, Jess. Hold on. Steve Horowitz calling on line one. We've never done this before. Do I answer the phone and, um, you know, hold on, hold on. Let's do this on the pod. Steve, Steve Horowitz, we are recording with Jessica Berman. Is there anything you'd like to add to this discussion? Yes, Kurt Bottenheiser, whatever, is not funny enough to have written this line. Oh, he's going to our Michael Jaw. I'll call you back, Mr. Horowitz. Thank you for your participation. <laughs> it is great. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, hey, yeah, you can't get rid of this guy. It's all it's all money going because they believe in Jessica and now she has all that money. They're here to stay forever. There you go. You'll be retained for the next sale as well. Well done. Later. That's Mr. Horowitz. So you, you referenced a professional earlier, Steve Horowitz, one of them that helped you with this sale. Yeah, the, the professionals we retained were, in fact, and that was not staged. Um, did not staged. I did not know he was calling. Um, by either of us, uh, was Inner Circle. And really, truly, Steve Horowitz and his team did an incredible job of... It, it's not just the competitive tension... It's the thoroughness of the way they um, enacted a mutual due diligence process. And so we had a robust data room and he created an environment where we had an opportunity to interview potential investors as well. So it wasn't a given that you had an entry space into the league. And I think flipping the script on who had bargaining power and who had leverage in the negotiation was part of what made this so successful. I, I was talking to a friend of mine about the expansion process recently, and he, moderate sports fan, was surprised that in an expansion discussion like this, that the group comes before the city. 
that NWSL wouldn't say, we want a team in San Francisco and then go and, and ask groups to, to bid. My response was that I think NWSL cares more about the who than the where at this point in, in the league's growth. But I, you, you would be better to answer that question than I am. I'm curious about how you balance those two things about where you want these teams to be and obviously who the people are that are putting up the money. I've been saying it. it forever, Jess. It, it, the money is not enough anymore. It's who are you and what are the, what are the strategic advantages you bring? Yeah. And the facilities, right? I, I think for us in particular and women's sports in particular, that is not a given that they will have appropriate facilities. And it's also not a given, given the history of women's sports, that just because you have the financial wherewithal that you're in, willing to invest that money. That is the other more qualitative question that is super important for us as a league. And what I would say to your to your question, Evan, I think it's a fair question. And I think when leagues are 25 to 30 teams, you are going to be more focused on the market because you're going to look at your geographic footprint. You're going to look at your divisions, your conferences, your schedule. We are at the inception of our growth. We are going to be 14 teams next year. There are plenty of places and spaces and cities where we could be happy and thrive and make it work. Um, We first look to the investor and make sure they are the right investor in terms of being values aligned, having the appropriate financial wherewithal, having the investment tolerance that's necessary to take this high growth property to the next level, because we know it's been historically undervalued. And then looking at the facilities, those are sort of like the two primary filters, I would say. And the market has to work, but there are so many that it it, it shouldn't be the lead question, at least not right now. Is there a number you can put on investment tolerance? Uh, Alan mentioned, obviously, the $53 million fee and, and another 40 for a facility and another 30 they're going to put into kind of operating costs. But if, if you're an NWSL owner over the next five years, is there kind of even a rough estimate you can think of as this is what we want to make sure that you are willing and able to spend to keep up with the growth that we're doing? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think it depends in large part on your strategy. And, you know, are you looking to develop, for example, I'll just give some examples, develop talent in your market, or are you looking to participate in the free agent market? Are you looking to attract international talent? How are you thinking about your staff? Are you thinking about bringing in people from outside the market? Are you thinking about cultivating your own leaders? And when you look at other sports franchises, these are different strategies that could impact your model for how you invest? Do you own your facility? Do you want to own your facility? Are there partners in your market that you want to work with? And so I think it really is fact specific, but it is true that Alan has reframed this as a $125 million investment because that is what they are committed to do on their books. From our perspective at the league, it was really important to us in the way that sometimes these deals get announced that it be super clear that the $53 million is the actual franchise fee. This isn't like a, oh, we're adding in their payroll for next year. You know, like they are actually writing a check to the league. That is the value of launching a franchise in the Bay Area. And it is $53 million. Do you mean to tell me, Jessica Berman, commissioner of the NWSL, with lots of experience in the men's sports side, that perhaps there'd be, for some reason, some inflation in these numbers, that maybe they are not perhaps exactly what we're told? Could that possibly be? I don't know whether it's true or not true. I just know that people say that all the time. And I think, again, given the history in women's sports, it would be even more likely that people would say that in this context. It would be even more likely that someone would say, oh, they're saying 53 million, but is it a hard 53 million or a soft 53 million? And they say that in men's sports. So you can imagine, of course, they would say it in women's sports because there's always ways to figure out how to strip down a number. And so 
you know, I'm more than happy for Alan to feel comfortable sharing what's on their internal books that they're investing 125 million. And I think it's great. We obviously support it. We approve their strategy. We approve their business plan. We're super excited about their vision for the future. I'm glad Alan and you brought it up that this is like serious. These are these are professional investors. And I think it does make a difference at our Invest in Sports conference last year. I love the fact David Blitzer was talking about I mean, he's in everything. Like literally, this guy is in every league. I can't think of like, I'm, does he paddle ball? I don't know, but he'll get there if he isn't. Where he said when he looks at an opportunity, he doesn't actually do this, but he, through his mind, wonders what it would be like if he was pitching the Blackstone Investment Committee. Say, what would they ask? What holes are they poking? And he said a lot of these things probably wouldn't pass the Blackstone Committee on the men's side, but I'm guessing on this side, it would. It obviously has its Sixth Street and the due diligence would have to pass sort of that that in, that sort of inspection on on the committee side. Absolutely, and I was in the room when he said that, and I thought it was really interesting because I think when you you have to think about what is the end goal of why you're investing, and I think historically in sports, people have conflated two sometimes conflicting goals. Are you looking to create a year over year? cash flow positive, sustainable business model, or are you looking to invest in an asset that will appreciate over time? And those wait, is, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think it's yes and yes. Is it not yes and yes? <laughs> yes and yes. But I, you know, again, I think when you look at the life cycle of professional sports leagues and the amount of decades it's taken for, you know, an NFL owner to know that when they spend that amount of money, they can rely on essentially a league subsidy yeah. for their local investments. It, it, it's you have to look at it. In, That's in- the rub <laughs> of women's sports, and it's so unfair. And we, Evan and I, talk about it a lot of time. That's the rub where the comparison is apples to watermelons. Where it's like, yeah, well, the NFL is this, the NBA is that. Okay, we're a few years old. <laughs> like, where are we in the life cycle compared? You're comparing us to something that has absolutely no proportion of what we're talking about. And even some of those leagues that have been around for decades and even close to or more than a century are still wrestling with some of these questions, right? Not in every market. And, uh, you know, if you look at it in five to 10 year segments, you can see that over time, you're getting closer to that on the spectrum, more like the NFL. But everyone lives on a spectrum. And I would argue for a 10 year old league, we're doing pretty well in that analysis relative to competitive set properties. To that to that point, one of the things I I find so interesting about your job is the kind of the the vast difference between franchise valuation and where they kind of are business sense. If I think of our NFL valuations, for example, the Cowboys are worth seven and a half billion, and the the lowest team is about three. So it's a something like a two x difference between top and bottom. I have a feeling that if all the NWSL teams were for sale at the same time, you would see more than a two x difference between top and bottom. I'm curious how that how that plays out in your mind when you think about the the alignment of values, initiatives, ability to spend, how you balance kind of all of that, that range. That that was great facial gesticulation. She was carrying (laughs) the one. Let me see if that's right. I'm not so sure. Let me go back in the. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That, as my kids would say, um, that was the facial expression of my mind at work. That's, that's what they always say whenever they see me processing. No, I don't know if I would agree necessarily with that. Um, but certainly there's a range, like we could debate like what is the range, but, um, you know, I think all of these assets, when they are valued, you look at not only their current P&L, you look at the 
projections for, you know, one, two, three, five years. And then you look at the league and where the league sits and all of those things have to come together. And I think um, certainly with the history of this league and having last season, 2022, being the first, literally, like we talk about this league being 10 years old, but the thing that I marvel at and I, you know, having been in seat now almost 12 months, 2022 was the first full season that this league, the NWSL, was truly independent and private from mm. the U.S. Soccer Federation. I, yes, we are 10 years old, but we are really, in terms of creating our own infrastructure and creating our own strategies and building a vision for the future, we're talking about one year. We're really talking about one year. So when you look at where we are, and I love making hockey references with Sashnik. Oh, yay, let's do it. We're at that, you know, that hockey stick. The hockey stick. We're we're on the top of the blade here. We are because we're not even 10 years old in terms of our infrastructure. And I'm not even talking about the wholesale changes that were made a year ago in terms of how the board came together and recalibrated on the basis of some of the challenges that the league faced. I'm talking about literally being either within or directly uh, working with or subsidized in many ways by U.S. soccer. And we get no funding now for the last year plus. And that is a relatively recent change. Help me out here from the commissioner's seat. What's your day like when you have to sort of take into account interest rate undulations? All of a sudden you're hearing about SVB and, and bank defaults and what's our risk there? What's our exposure? Geopolitical strife. That's For the top seat, that's a little different. You probably didn't have to do that as often and take into account, wait a minute, what does this mean for not not only us in aggregate, but that particular owner? What what do we do? So, what's your day like when like an SVB breaks? What what yeah. what happened in your office or your home? Well, I think um, that was just really um, symptomatic. I think of some of the market risks that we know exist both domestically and globally that we need to pay attention to as a league. And I think, particularly given how high growth this league is right now, figuring out how we balance that with some of the risk tolerance around some of these issues in terms of policies and how how much do we want to either align or deviate from the traditions of professional sports in this country are some of the questions that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about and analyzing. And Can you give me an example of that? What's an example of what that means? I'll give you a perfect example. We're talking Lovely. about expansion. We're talking about Sixth Street being a controlling investor. We're talking about the fact that we are the first league, I believe, in modern day in this infrastructure, similar to NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball structure, where we have individual owners that we approved as a board and institutional investment vehicle to be a controlling owner. It carries with it some risk. What are the pros and cons? What are the benefits to us having Sixth Street as a controlling owner? What kind of safeguards do we want to put in place? How do we balance all that risk tolerance? What are those cons? We want to grow. What are those cons? Because as we know, the NBA approved private capital, the NFL is still weighing or not. What were the cons on accepting institutional capital? Well, the NBA approved institutional capital as a minority investor. Yeah, not as a control owner, correct. That is where we... I would argue, are pioneers. And I think it'll work to our benefit. We are the first league to approve institutional capital as a control owner. 
What the gave you pause? The, yeah, what gave you pause? In it? Yeah, and you know, uh, we spent many hours, days, weeks negotiating the safeguards around how we could get comfortable. The cons without the safeguards that we put in place, and we could talk about some of those safeguards. When you take a step back and think about why would a sports league be scared of an institutional investor as a control owner? The premise of uh, sports league ownership from the league's perspective, number one, is that you have someone, a person, who stands behind the franchise. When really there's cares. A problem, when there's a problem, you can pick up the phone. It's not a nameless, faceless person. It's not, you know, 1-800, like, who can I talk to? Who is this EBITDA person? We have to be able to call a human when there are issues, like an SVB is a perfect example. We have to be able to triage challenges and and uh, conflicts and issues that come up in real time as it relates to the funding of the franchise, the financial sustainability of the franchise. So that's number one. Number two, that tends to make leagues nervous is when you lose the connectivity between decision-making and money. So mm. when you think about institutional capital and you say like, who has the authority to bind Sixth Street? Can Alan Waxman actually sit on our board and make decisions on behalf of the tens of billions of dollars the, in the, the Tau Fund? In the pool in capital, our, yeah. In our circumstances, the answer is yes. The third thing, which is hugely important, is that as we were just talking about, as it relates to cash flow as, as compared to, and I don't want to say that it's necessarily mutually ex exclusive, but cash flow versus asset appreciation. When you look at institutional capital, oftentimes there's a sell-by date. There's an expectation that you're going to be cash, that you're going to liquidate in 10 years or five years. And that's not acceptable for a sports franchise. And from a league perspective, we could never and would never approve an owner, either an individual owner or for sure institutional capital, where the capital is at risk within a period of time. So this fund uniquely is an evergreen fund. And the money doesn't need to liquidate ever. It can remain invested in the club for so long as it's appropriate. Is there a minimum hold period? There's none in this. This in in this. I'm saying that this fund is unlimited. It's evergreen. So it is in in every way as analogous as it could be to an individual investor. But I mean, did the league put in this deal with Sixth Street that there is a minimum hold period? You cannot leave in three, four, five years. No, because we wouldn't treat them differently than we would okay. an individual investor. Because if, I mean, any one of our owners could wake up one day and for any reason want to work with the league on trying to sell their franchise, and we would, they, they could. We just don't want any externalities or other variables that are not in our control driving the result that could affect the valuations across the league. And that's the reason that most leagues don't allow this. Now, my understanding from being educated in this process from Alan and others is that this investment vehicle is quite unique. I'm not sure there's like a plethora of Tau funds that exist in the institutional capital world. I'm sure it's gotten the attention of, I'd like to think, some of what we built through this Proof of concept has gotten the attention of other leagues and funds about how to create a vehicle that actually works. And I believe that we put those proper safeguards in place.
So if those were the concerns, what are the safeguards? What are the things that, that, that either you heard from them or you made sure to include in a contract that, that, that alleviates whatever concerns arise from this? Yeah, well, just by way of example, um, again, you talk about governance. Alan Waxman is the governor on our board. He is the thread that takes us from money to governance. And so he has the authority to bind the investment vehicle, which is the Tau Fund at 6th Street. And he is the one who sits on our board and casts the vote on behalf of the Bay Area team. So we don't have to sort of trace down for decision-making purposes someone who can bind the money. We have that person on our board, and that is stipulated in our agreement. Now, you can imagine, and Alan is super engaged, super passionate about this, but relative to other investments, this is probably one of the smallest investments that Sixth Street has. We made real clear to him that despite that, the expectation is that he sits on our board. He has to show up personally because we can't lose that thread between governance and... Well, well I, would, I would hope all investors always do realize, even if it is on the small side in terms of dollars and cents, it's outsized professional sports anyway in terms of attention. So you, you, want, you, want, you want to put, you put your attention there anyway. Positive and negative, right? Uh, oh, yes. I, I, you, <laughs> you, you, you've had your share of negative in the, in the not-so-far term off. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, you know, that's just one example. But yeah, the fact that it's an evergreen fund, um, some of the sort of approvals processes that we put in place and how we work together to triage when there are issues that are unique to investment vehicles, um, like that are institutional capital. So yeah, we're, we're really proud of the of the work that our legal teams did together, frankly, because it really was a, you know, a partnership where they recognized that some of the concerns that have existed at professional sports leagues exist for good reason. And so we have to create an environment that sets us up for success so that it can be a proof of concept for other leagues going forward. Before we let you go, Jessica, I want to talk media for a second. One of the things that investors love about sports teams is that they have contractually obligated revenue, largely in the form of media. Uh, I know the NWSL's current deal isn't fully there yet, but I expect the expectation is the next one uh, is really going to be a driver. How do you balance this 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 thread we've seen in sports right now, where you can get reach, you can get money. Sometimes to get one or the other, you have to sacrifice a little bit of the other thing, unless you're the NFL, obviously. Um, yeah, as as you sit down and start to talk about a next media deal, um, where do you think about those two levers? Yeah, it, it's exactly right. Um, th- those things run in direct conflict. To one another. And I think we saw this on a mini scale five, 10, 15 years ago with cable. Now that equivalent of cable is OTT and digital. C- right? Cable? What's, what's cable? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're the cable guy. I'm going to show you my transistor radio. Yeah, I'm still a bundle guy, so I'm happy yeah. with it. <laughs> so, you know, we, we have to think long and hard about, you know, what takes priority. Is it short, medium, or long term growth? And I suspect that there'll be a balance in how we think about it because of the variety of different factors. Obviously, as a high growth company, cash is great. We also know that we're a growing league. And while we have an incredible avid fan base, we have to grab the attention of the casual fan. And we feel like this next season is actually going to be a real pivot point for this league following the Women's World Cup because particularly domestically in this country, the U.S. men's national team, they play here in our league. That's a 
nice plug to our new marketing campaign called We Play Here, where we're really trying to communicate in broad strokes to the average sports fan who we know does watch the Women's World Cup that those U.S. Women's National Team players play in the NWSL. You can watch them every single week. Is it a coincidence that the these conversations are happening right around the Women's World Cup? Is that is that intentional or does that kind of work to your advantage that that as a lot of these women are starring in, in the biggest stage for women's soccer that you're also talking to potential partners about how, how big a stars they are? Get in now. Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, I, I can't take credit for the expiration of the deal, right? The deal concludes at the end of the season, but certainly as we were building the timeline for how we initially educated the market and meeting with different media properties and began our roadshow in Q4 of 2022 and have now been in deeper discussion negotiations with a variety of different potential partners, we are very aware that this summer is the Women's World Cup and that we think that that really could be a catalyst for tremendous growth in our league. Uh, Jessica, has anybody investigated, and this is a really, really big, this is your end. This is the biggie. Has anybody with the NWSL investigated whether Angel Reese or uh, Caitlin Clark can play soccer? <laughs> you know what? It's a, it's a great idea, and I will give you credit for you it. You are the second person that told me I had a great idea today, by the way. Unbelievable. Today, this year, today, this today, today <laughs> unprecedented. Two in one day. Wow. Wow. Well, if we... Find out either of them can play soccer and we bring them into our league. We'll give you credit for it. We'll there get we, you a jersey. The, the, oh, there, there we go. And by the way, by the way, just, you know, I love Evan and I worked alongside him now for more than a decade plus, oh boy. but I, I wrote it down. You said he came with the mic drop moment at 757 of this discussion. Evan, way too early. <laughs> you never want a mic drop at 757. I'm glad we could bring in. it back to another great idea, number two for the day. But let's make sure we don't mic drop at 757 again, okay? <laughs> yes, sir. Good. Jessica, thank you so much. Uh, great luck with, with, with the new franchise, the expansion. You got more teams coming up for sale. More to write about, more to cover. The eyeballs are there. We're here to tell everybody. Thank you. Appreciate all the support. All right, Eben, uh, I, you and I talk all the time about women's sports and you know, dovetailing off the NCAA and the 53 million. Do you feel the drumbeat? Do you hear the drumbeat getting It's louder? hard to ignore the drumbeat, Scott. There's, there's just so many yeah. data points, again, not just in women's soccer and not just in NWSL, but around women's sports. I, I was so interested in what Jessica was talking about regarding being the first major U.S. league to bring in a, a private equity fund, not just as a minority stake, which has happened lots of times, but bring them in at the control level and 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 the safeguards that they have to get in place, what they need to hear from a group like Sixth Street to understand that, how they think about time horizon of investment and, and, and when a company might exit. All of those things, as you know, Scott, those are conversations happening at every league in the U.S. right now. And, and she did such a good job of laying out exactly how the NWSL approached them. That's right. You want to do the close today? You want to do I'm it? I'm doing it. He is Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. I am Evan Novi Williams on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. The show is produced by Matt Whitehurst. Shout out to Matt. Cora Veltman, Sportico's digital media editor, would want you to know that this is the hub of what is the Sportico Media Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.